Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, February 24th, 2011. They tell us we're going to get another accumulating snowstorm here in central Indiana. Hmm. So much for global warming. Oh, yeah, I forget. The liberals call it climate change now. The reason why they call it climate change is that's an ideology. There is no evidence that you can bring to them that will prove that their ideology is wrong. They will throw it all out. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said from Christian pulpits, and all of it is quite needless. The reason why is because God has revealed himself in Scripture. We can trust what the Scriptures reveal about God because all of God's Word, all of the Scriptures are God-breathed. And uh, if you would just read them, and rather than rip verses out of context here and there and try to fashion your own theology, which these uh, hucksters are doing, uh, you know, you, there's no point in any of that. Plus, all of that stuff is a form of idolatry and a form of taking God's name in vain. And uh, God does not look kindly on those who do such things. And uh, he calls them to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ and to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. And that means preaching and teaching sound biblical doctrine that points us to Christ and him crucified for our sins. Now, on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I'm going to to uh, play the light edition of uh, uh, Fighting for the Faith today. And um, I found a lecture that was uh, delivered by Dr. Michael Horton back in May of uh, 2009, and uh, it's on the uh, promise-driven life. And the reason I'm playing this is because I want to get this as a counterpoint in your head to the uh, the really bad sermon that we reviewed from Stovall Weems a couple of days ago. You you need to hear somebody rightly handling uh, the story of Abraham aside from me, you know. Be, <laughs> and uh, Dr. Horton does a fine job in this lecture entitled "The Promise Driven Life." So, without any further ado, here is Dr. Michael Horton. you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 4.
In contrast to all the stories we tell about ourselves, which usually really amount to nothing more than a show about nothing, um, God retells our story. He re-narrates us, and we learn from uh, the passages we'll be looking at uh, here how it is that when God is the playwright, the screen screenwriter, uh, and the, the the lead actor, uh, we actually become characters in His unfolding drama, and His Word actually creates the world that it describes. We begin with verse 1 of chapter 4 of Romans. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before a God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who's against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And then verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Laid out uh, on the couch uh, a while back with the sickness. I didn't feel like doing anything. Didn't feel like uh, reading the newspaper or uh, uh, listening to the radio. I flipped on the TV and I started flipping, uh, channel surfing. And it seemed like it was a Saturday. I, it seems to be that uh, Saturday is uh, all infomercials. And so uh, I suddenly became infomercials and watched one right after the other. Um, I learned a lot from Susie Ormond, and uh, for, for example, never knew who she was until this uh, until this this program and her steps to financial financial security. Uh, bought that kit, and then uh, 
And then uh, Jake came on with his home gym. And uh, I was about midway through dialing that one, and Lisa found me uh, with my wallet open and uh, came running over to me uh, as if it were the end of the world and and released me from my bondage. You know, we all we all need goals. We gravitate toward this sort of thing. We are we're law creatures, and this is good. This is right because God wired us for obedience. He didn't wire us for redemption. He wired us for obedience. That's how we're created. We're created in the image of God. With all of the requisite abilities and excellencies and, and, and uh, moral perfections that would, would be necessary for fulfilling the commission that God gave us in the beginning. And so it just stands to reason that we, we fall for glory stories. You know, we, we fall for, here is a great program, and if you follow it, this is the outcome you can expect. Those are glory stories. The glory up at the end of that road, because the ultimate glory story was the one that God gave to, to Adam. If he would fulfill his trial, like a courtroom trial, if he would fulfill that trial, not only for himself and, and his wife, but for all of his posterity as the covenant head, he would win for all of us the right to eat from the tree of life. Not only would he be justified, but we would be justified as well. No one would ever die. We would be confirmed in righteousness. No one could ever fall. The consummation that we expect when Jesus returns would have happened then and there. It's a good glory story. The way it should have been. The law as the, the only delight. There was a time, yes, when the creature God made in his image had nothing greater he wanted to do that day than fulfill God's law. Oh, how I love thy law, O oh Lord. All of that in Psalm 119. Adam could say, and Eve could say as well. And so it's natural to us to think in terms of motivation, exhortation. It's natural for us to think that the situation isn't really as bad as we think it is because we don't know about the fall and its seriousness. We know about its effects, but we don't know about the fall itself, the reason for the symptoms, the fall itself or what God has done about it apart from a report. No one has to report to little children this just in. Don't pull your sister's hair not news. So that a million times. Boys keep pulling my daughter's hair. Say a million times. I'll say it a million more times probably. It's never news. It never comes to them as a shocking disorder. What? What did he just say? Could it really be that I'm not supposed to pull my sister's hair? Of course they knew they're not supposed to pull their sister's hair. That's why they did it. And uh, you know, don't, don't get the cookies. They're not done yet. And, of course, just by saying it, sort of uh, ex opere operato, it causes the children uh, to go get the cookies. And, and see, that's, that's the way it works. Not because the law does that, but because we do that with the law. We twist it from its original intention. We do horrible, strange things to wonderful, good things. 
And so this is why it's dangerous for us to live the purpose-driven life. We need purposes. We need goals. We need aims. We need to know where we're supposed to go, and we need map quests to get us there. We need directions. But we can't be driven by them. We can only be guided by them. We have to be driven by something that gets us out of ourselves, fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. For that, we need news. Not better programs that non-Christians can even come up with. Non-Christians can realize even that uh, maybe they were created for a purpose. There are a lot of people who don't believe in Christ who believe that they were made for a purpose. But this is only damning news apart from the gospel. Even when I hear in the great first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If my conscience is not bathed in the good news of the gospel, I hear that as nothing but badness. I am created for the glory of God, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Do I glorify Him as I should? No. Do I enjoy Him as I ought? No. Just look at how sometimes with great, uh, with, 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 with great uh, commitment and resolve, I have to get my ready, myself ready to go to church sometimes. If I really enjoyed God as I should, I would be running out the door. And so often I find that it's a burden. It's a burden sometimes to sing in church. It's a burden sometimes. Don't you find that? I'm, I, I guess I'm alone here, sort of twisting in the wind. Don't leave me alone here. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so it, it, it comes as horrible news unless I hear of one who did glorify God and enjoyed Him forever in my place. And now, ironically, hmm, I can glorify God and enjoy Him. Because it comes to me now not as condemnation, but as the good news that because someone has stood in that place for me, I can stand in that place in Him before the Father. The gospel really makes us extroverts. You don't have to, you don't have to have someone bring you news. That's why I think, again, the religion stories today are, are pretty boring. They're, uh, you know, this church here is going to uh, solve this social crisis. This movement, Christian movement over here, is going to uh, make that great thing happen over here. Well, do you really need churches to do that? We have uh, uh, neighbors two doors down who are uh, Muslims from Palestine, and their kids play with our kids all the time, and they're great parents, and, and uh, their kids are a little older than our kids, and uh, they've taught them some really good habits. They have, they, and they have great conversations about right and wrong and so forth. And they get right, right and wrong about things that, uh, you know, the, the moral core of the Ten Commandments and so forth. Uh, it's nice to see that it's not everything that you see <laughs> uh, in, in the news. Uh, two of the, uh, our best friends come into our life uh, uh, happened to be my barber and his wife. They're atheists. And uh, they're very close friends of ours. And uh, 
uh, and he reads these books and he sees that he's mentioned and so forth and he, he likes it. So that's fine. Uh, but uh, they taught us an enormous amount of, of stuff about raising kids. Uh, you know, when do you let them watch this? When do you do that? They're great on that stuff. They give great advice, even on moral questions. Learned a lot from, from, from these folks. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a lot of wisdom in the covenant that comes from God's law that non-Christians don't know. But what I am saying is when it comes to the core of being a good person, non-Christians do not lack civil morality as much as we think they do. Non-Christians can set up just governments. Non-Christians can, can set up good neighborhoods and, and so forth because God, they're created in God's image. They might scratch and scrape and mar and try to disfigure that image, but they can't ultimately. They might suppress the truth in, of God in unrighteousness, but they can't suppress it all at the same time. It's the gospel that's shocking. So when we have those conversations with our friends about how to raise children, we often just back and forth and we run over each other's sentences and interrupt each other. And then uh, it comes to Jesus dying on a cross for our sins and being raised for our justification. And we hear a pin drop. Conversation stops and our friends just. Okay, how long are we going to be talking about this? And uh, as we talk about it, they ask a few questions, and they sit there, and they just yeah, I mean, if that were true, it would change everything. See, the gospel's strange. The other stuff isn't. The gospel is, is strange. So we have to be driven by the gospel, even though we're directed by the law. And that's what we find in the passage before us in Romans 4. Before we, before we get there, though, I want to look really uh, briefly, too briefly, uh, at Genesis chapter 15, which is really the lodestar for what Paul is talking about here. Paul is thinking about the whole Abraham narrative, but especially Genesis 15 when he is writing his argument in Romans chapter 4. Abram has just returned from battling the pagan kings, and uh, he is greeted by this strange figure, the king of Salem. Not Oregon. Uh, the, the king of Salem, and Salem here, uh, shalom, peace, uh, is uh, the, the, uh, the beginnings of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, before it is Jerusalem as we know it in the Bible, but he is the strange, uh, enigmatic figure uh, we don't know much about who was the, the king of Salem. And it's clear that he is a very extraordinary figure because Abraham pays him tithes and greets him as Lord, as his suzerain. And Melchizedek, this strange figure, offers Abram bread and wine after this conquest over the pagan kings. And after these things, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch pass between those pieces. And we read that on that day God made a covenant with Abram. Abram comes back from this war and he's given good news. Abram, you belong to me. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Uh, to ancient Near Eastern lawyers, this would be known as a royal grant. It was an outright gift. Sort of the thing that happens when uh, a modern monarch... Uh, uh, make someone appear for uh, heroic activity on the battlefield or for uh, great contributions to society. Make them an earl or a lord uh, of some sort. Bringing uh, them not only a new title, but also a new estate that can, in some cases at least, be passed down to future generations. Well, the only problem with this, Abram says, is this is a good news, bad news day for me. The good news is, you are my shield, and my reward shall be very great. The bad news is, I don't have an heir. What good is an inheritance without an heir? You know, the, the heir part of inheritance. This, this story is going to stop with me. As it is right now, I, I don't know if you've seen the situation down here, but it doesn't look good. Eliezer of Damascus is the only one. Because you haven't given me an heir. He's blaming God here. Because you haven't given me an heir, how am I to take this promise seriously? It seems like the empirical facts of the case. Everything that Abraham sees counts against the promise. 
And yet God counters again with a promise, offering the innumerable stars as testimony. If you can count them, so numerous shall your heirs be. How can this possibly be? I'm only asking for one. And yet Abram believed. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Hashab, the uh, word here that is employed, is an unmistakably legal term. He declared him righteous then and there. What's remarkable is that the story doesn't end there. And, you know, and then they lived happily ever after and Abram was a good man who uh, always did the right thing and uh, did what Jesus would do. But sadly, tragically, uh, the story goes through twists and turns after this. We're not even finished yet with Abram's uh, unbelief in this very episode. But you know what he's going to do later. He's going to, uh, he's going to try to, to, to make the promise come about by his own effort, planning and scheming, uh, by having a, a child through Hagar instead of Sarah, though the promise was that Sarah will be the bearer of this child of promise. And then uh, as they're, they're sojourning uh, in a foreign land, the, the, uh, this pagan king wants to take Sarah for his wife. And Abram's a little worried about his own uh, state of affairs at this point. He's afraid for his own life. And so he says, uh, she's my sister. And so he he thinks that, that, that she's available. This is not the sort of thing that you go to counseling for these things for many, many, many years. And uh, this is Abram, the, our forefather in faith. You see, faith doesn't create, faith receives. And God had to keep preaching the gospel to Abraham before he would believe it. And then you thought, you think he's got, I, I, I got it, I got it, I got it, I don't got it. It's sort of that, that thing where he, you think he has it, and then he drops the ball. But he hasn't dropped it completely. God is always there preaching. And you, you think at some point God would say, okay, you know, Abram, you, you and Sarah give me nothing but headaches. I'm not going to let the same dog bite me twice. I'm moving on to someone else. There's surely got to be somebody around here who's going to be, more amenable. Someone is going to work with me here. But he doesn't move on because he has made this absolute unconditional pledge. And he will keep it. And so he keeps preaching that pledge to Abram. And this is the doctrine of justification that is so paradoxical for us. It's so difficult, isn't it? Very difficult for us to really hold on to this one. That in spite of everything I see about myself and in myself and around myself, God declares those to be just who at the time that he declares it are actually unjust. That the promise outweighs what we can see or feel. That's why the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's counterintuitive. You mentioned this sort of stuff on the street, and it's not just very... Religious people uh, from various denominations who get mad at you, it's non-Christians. That's not fair. That's the, then, then why, you know, religion doesn't work then. Religion is supposed to sort of be the carrot <laughs> out there for being a better person. 
It all seems like pie in the sky for Abram, even at this point. Sarah is still barren, and she's not getting any younger. She's 99 years old. He's 100. And yet God gets the ball rolling and keeps the ball rolling by preaching. Just by preaching a gospel that is counterintuitive, that isn't consistent with all of the realities that he sees all around him. Has to keep preaching it because everything he, he experiences when God isn't talking seems so palpably to count against it. How will I know that these things will happen? Isn't that amazing? He, he asks this after he believed and was justified. I believe. Now, how will I know this will happen? What kind of pledge can you give me? Just reminding us again, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, God remains faithful, since he cannot deny himself. When God unilaterally swears something by himself, it must come to pass. And so he has this very strange vision. Wow, what a strange vision it was. Take animals, cut them in half, and split them one on, side, uh, on one side of the aisle and, uh, and the other. And uh, Abram probably knew exactly what this kind of ceremony was, because in the ancient Near East, when the greater power, the, the emperor, would cut a covenant, that's why it was called cutting a covenant, would cut a covenant with the lesser tribes in his federation, inaugurating the treaty, you would have both sides, you know, like friends of the groom, friends of the bride. You'd have both sides, both peoples represented there as witnesses. And the gods called upon as witnesses. And the great king would cause the lesser king to pass through the halves of the animals. And this was a sign and a seal, public ceremony, sealing the treaty, saying, May the same fate befall me if I do not keep the terms of this treaty. As I walk solemnly between the halves of these severed animals, may I be cut in half by the great king if I am not faithful to all that he commands. This was a suzerainty treaty. Literally cutting a covenant. And so, so far, it, it looks pretty familiar. It's a suzerainty treaty. It's an international device to seal an international treaty so that now this lesser kingdom is part of the empire. What's strange is that as Abram falls asleep, he has a vision with a smoking fire pot passing through these severed halves. Now, first of all, it's important to point out that really, and I'm not trying to be clever here, it it, it really can be documented as you go through these narratives of, of the uh, patriarchs that the greatest leaps forward in redemptive history occur when they're asleep. It's when they're active that you look at your watch and say, wow, there's a lot of chapters on that. Then somebody goes to sleep. You know, Jacob uh, in Genesis falls asleep in the, the ladder from heaven to earth. Otherwise, just a lot of, about him running. Uh, you know, from his big brother who's after him. And he falls asleep, and wow, your tears are running down your eyes because God's 
the only actor in the scene. That's what's happening here. God is the only actor. Abram has fallen asleep. He has finally shut Abram up. And he is a passive receiver of the gospel. He has just preached the gospel and now he's sealing it, ratifying it publicly with this ceremony. May the blood be on my head, God says. May I be split in two, torn down the middle if this promise isn't fulfilled. I'm not sending you down the aisle. I'm walking down the aisle alone. The emperor taking the place of the vassal, walking down that aisle by himself, assuming the curses upon his own head for this treaty to be realized. In Genesis 22, when Abram follows God's command to sacrifice Isaac, God provides a substitute. At just the right moment, just as Abram is about to plunge his knife into his son Isaac, circumcision was a partial cutting off of the flesh precisely to keep that from happening, a total cutting off, either a partial cutting off in circumcision or a total cutting off, the knife being plunged into the heart and every man and woman and child will stand trial in his own works and bear the curses on his own head. Circumcision was a way of, of cutting off, of including the people in the, in, in the covenant which is why when Moses, probably because of Zipporah, his wife, uh, came from a pagan background, didn't want uh, 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 their son circumcised, God came to kill Moses as he was walking along the way. Or it says he came to kill him for not carrying that out. And uh, so finally Zipporah went and uh, took a knife and she did it. And then she threw the foreskin at Moses' feet. She said, you have a bloody God in a bloody religion. And God relented. Why? Because Moses' son was now identified with him. There's the foreskin at Moses' feet, bloody. And all of this typology is to say, don't, don't, don't. Do this by yourself. Do not appear in that holy courtroom in your own righteousness. Identify with the only one who fulfilled all righteousness. And that's why Paul so sharply contrasts the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai where the people said, all this we will do. And then we read, in accordance with these words, all this we will do. He splashed the blood on the people. See? You assume responsibility for this. You said the oath. You made the promise. All this we will do. And he sprinkled the blood upon the people. And so that national covenant, this isn't about salvation, it's about the, the national covenant, Israel as uh, the theocracy that is a type and shadow of the heavenly kingdom to come. There being that theocracy, their remaining in that earthly land, is conditioned on their obedience. Very different from the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve after the fall. 
I will, I will, I will, I will. I will send a redeemer. Very different from the promise that he made to Abraham. I will, I will, I will, I will. Sealing it with him walking alone through the severed house. Very different from the covenant that he made with David. Even though I know your sons will turn out to be as big a scoundrel as you were, I will not ever withhold my favor for the sake of the promise I swore to you this day. And it's not like the covenant that the prophets prophesied, for instance, in Jeremiah 31, when the prophet says, God says through Jeremiah, the new, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant, and it will not be like the covenant that I made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, which they broke, though I was a husband to them. In fact, Hosea 6-7 says, like Adam, Israel broke my covenant. This is the tragedy that Paul's exploring in Romans and elsewhere, that Israel is in Adam too. It's not like you have bad Gentile in Adam, Jews in Moses. No, you have Israel too, it turns out, in Adam. The only way we can all get out of this together is by being transferred to the domain of Christ. And Paul would later attest in Galatians 3, 19 and 20 that this Abrahamic covenant couldn't possibly be more firmly established because it was based on God's sworn oath rather than the people's. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, Paul says here in Galatians 3. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. The Abrahamic covenant was confirmed in Christ. By Christ himself being the fulfillment of that vision. Jesus Christ himself bore the curses of the law, fulfilling the law and then bearing our curses. The curtain was torn in two. He did bear the curses for our sin-bearing. And then in chapter 4, Paul uses the allegory of two mountains and two mothers and tells the earthly Jerusalem that they actually are spiritually descended from Hagar. Imagine people scratching their heads. What? Okay, Paul. Yeah, I know you say in Gamaliel II, but we all ha have bad days. You, you, mi you misunderstood the story. You meant to say, children of Sarah. No, actually I didn't. Yeah, I think you did, because the Arabs are the children of Hagar. No, I, I meant to say what I said. They're spiritual children of Hagar. All of those who believe in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are children of Abraham. Mind-blowing. The story just keeps... You know, the plot thickens. God's promise creates a new world out of void. Fertile pastures out of barrenness. Acquittal out of condemnation. That's what God's words do. God declares things and they are so. And that's what these passages in Romans chapter 4 tell us. 
there was a doctrine in rabbinical teaching called Zakut uh, the, Abot, the merit of the fathers, where it was believed that, uh, you know, how, how, do you, how do you reconcile the fact that you have in the prophets all of this, this horrible judgment that comes upon the people of God for their sin? You can't just rip all of that out of there. If you're a Jew, a believing Jew, faithful Jew, you have to take those passages. Well, what do you do with that? What do you do with Israel's horrible violation of the law? Can Israel be saved? And the answer came back from the rabbis, yes, because whenever the Israelites have a deficit in their bank account, the merit of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is transferred. As if they themselves have done it. So the doctrine of justification was taught clearly by the rabbis. It was even justification by an imputed righteousness, but it was the imputed righteousness of Abraham. They thought he was a, such a good person. The good things that he did were over and beyond the call of duty. And those merits can be transferred to us. And Paul is saying it's just the opposite. Did you, did you read the story? Let's go back and read the story about Abraham. He, what did he have to boast about? Maybe before others who thought he was a good person, but not before God. God knew what he was really like. He didn't have enough righteousness for himself, much less something to give to Sarah or anybody else. But what does it say? He believed God. And was right then and there justified. Abraham is an example for us of the fact that God justifies the wicked. And so Paul here sharply contrasts the logic of the law with the logic of the promise. Not because he's against the law, but because when it comes to this question of inheriting the promise, it can never come by our works. It can never come by our scheming. It only comes by way of promise. In, in uh, uh, verse 13, Paul says you know, that we know the difference between a contract and a bequest. We know the difference between employees and heirs. And this is not that kind of treaty where the people say, all this we will do, and then God get, then rewards them for their obedience. This is a bequest. This is an inheritance. You know the difference between, if you do this, I'll do that, let's sign this, get it notarized. The contract. Contract for hire. What slaves do, or employees do, not what sons and heirs do. And yet Paul says, the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the wicked. His faith is credited for righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we don't have a contract with God. Well, he says that he would save me if I would do this. It's not a lot, but he said I have to, and I have to at least mean, I have to try, I have to do my best, I have to really mean it, I have to all this. It's not a contract. It's an inheritance. Sit down. Stop making promises. First, I want you to just sit there and listen. Just hear as I read to you the inheritance you've just received. 
as the writer to the Hebrews says, once the testator dies, the will goes into effect. And that's what happened at the cross. Once Jesus was crucified and bore our curses, our judgment on the cross, it's not just that we were forgiven, but the will went into effect. And we get to hear that will read every Lord's Day. All of the riches that can't be enumerated in our lifetime. All of the riches that we have in Jesus Christ simply bestowed on us through faith. The contrast is either or again in verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because he says the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see here the law and the gospel not only function as describing what God requires and describing what God does to save us, the law and the gospel do these things. The law brings about wrath. It's the law that brings us under the fiery judgment of God. And it is the gospel that just not just telling about what Jesus did, the gospel actually brings us under the saving mercy of God. I love the uh, question and answer 64 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Where does this saving faith come from? The Holy Spirit creates it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacrament. The Holy Spirit does this through means, as he did with Abram. God's word is effectual. It does what it says. Gospel doesn't just speak about a world that might come into existence if Abram will follow all the instructions. It creates the world that didn't exist first and then calls Abram to obey. And that's why he uses the analogy of ex nihilo creation itself. He says this is like another ex nihilo creation. What did God have to work with? Did God say, oh, okay, there's red. There's my, my red over there. There's my Okay, I've got a little clay over here. I'm going to paint. I'm going to make... He had, no, he had nothing to work with. He said, let there be light. And there was light. And Paul says, that's what happens in your salvation. What did God have to work with? You know, someone asked Martin Luther, are you saying that we don't have anything to contribute to salvation at all? And he says, oh, I'm sorry if you got that impression. No, we have lots to contribute to our own salvation. Sin and resistance. Why do we contribute to the creation of the world? Absolutely nothing. Well, we contribute that much to our salvation. While we were dead, he made us alive. While we were enemies, he reconciled us by the blood of Christ. It's always while we were not only passive, while we were active in hating him. He was active in loving and reconciling us to himself. For this reason, Paul says, it all depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his descendants. See, Paul's logic here is the logic of the Protestant Reformation. Well, the Protestant Reformation, the logic of Paul. You have all the solas here. He'll even throw in soli deo glory in a moment. Here's the logic of it. It's faith alone, not because faith itself is a work but because faith is simply receiving the work of Christ. 
so that it can be by grace alone and can come to all of his descendants, both Jew and Gentile. And he adds, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's not by doing what Jesus did. It's by hearing what Jesus did that we are brought into this strange new world. And we are made new creatures with new characters in a new story, a new script that we didn't write. We're no longer the stars of this show about nothing. We are instead supporting characters in the greatest story ever told. The future now was God's future, not Abram's. The scheming, conniving, plotting Abram was now Abraham, the father of many nations. And by Genesis 22, he was willing even to drive the knife into Isaac because he was convinced, convinced, that if God asked him to do that, he had the power to raise him up from the dead. He had faith in the God of crucifixion and resurrection. Paul adds here one more glistening pearl to the chain of the promise logic. He says, if the inheritance comes by faith in the promise and not by the works of the law, then faith gives all glory to God. Now, that's why he's the headliner. That's why he's the star of this, this story. All glory goes to God. Nothing is left for us to claim ourselves. That's why we have to be promise-driven, because we're fallen sinners. Not just purpose-driven. We can't be purpose-driven. Purposes will destroy us unless the promise is driving us. No matter what we do, no matter how we fail to fulfill our purposes in life, it's always God's constant preaching of that promise. That's why we have to hear the gospel every week. Not once to get saved and then we move on. We need to hear it all the time because that's the thing that remains counterintuitive to us the rest of our lives. If you went three Sundays without hearing the gospel, you would start falling back into your natural religion, which is self-trust. I'm not a sailor or the son of a sailor, so if you have a boat in the harbor over here, just ignore the errors in the story. It's, it's my story, so I can do what I want with it. Um, it's an analogy. Think of a sailboat, and I'll end with this. Think of a sailboat that is equipped with all the latest gadgets, and uh, you, you come sailing out of the harbor. You know where you're going because you plotted your course. You have all of the equipment that's helping you uh, guide the boat. And uh, you get out there in the middle of the seas, and your radio tells you, and all of your other equipment tells you that a squall is coming up, and you are in trouble. You don't have a motor. Beautiful day, but it's dead calm. There's no wind in the sails at all, and you're just sitting there. Well, you get shine, polish your equipment. You know, you can you could uh, uh, get more information about how you would get to safety if you could. You could get more directions. But eventually you'll exhaust yourself and realize that's not doing one bit of good. Because you don't have any wind to power this boat anywhere. And a lot of Christians become Christians and they're like that boat sailing out of the harbor. The wind in their sails, they've been forgiven. 
And those who have been forgiven much, love much. And they're just out looking, what can I, what can I do? And, and, and then in the process, because of who we are, they start trusting in that. And they wow, I'm really changed. I'm, I'm really changing. And they start looking at themselves again. And then they start realizing, if they're halfway honest, that they're also living in Romans 7. <laughs> Paul, good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then, after he asks that, he looks outside of himself and says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he gets moving again. He gets sailing again. No purposes. No plans. No agendas. No programs. No recommitments. No rededications. Will be able to move you one inch out of the storms of life into the safety of Christ's harbor unless the wind of the gospel is in your sails. The law guides us. The God law tells us what our purposes are. But the gospel drives us all the way to heaven. Amen. Ah, fantastic lecture. Good points. You'll notice I didn't interrupt it for a, a commercial break. I just wanted you all to hear this one in context all the way through. And you know, I don't think I can really add to that. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. You know the drill. Visit our website and support us today if you don't already support us financially. All right, so what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to contact me... Is talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> 